you can live out your MasterChef dreams. When you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. Welcome to Pod Save America. I'm John Favreau. I'm John Lovett. I'm Tommy Vitor. On the pod today, we will talk to the former deputy FEMA administrator, Richard Serino. Then later, we'll talk to the president of Demos, Heather McGee. Be sure to also check out from Friday. It was a great episode of Love It or Leave It. Very loose. We got into all of it. Very loose. It wasn't just politics. There was some Game of Thrones. There was some Taylor Swift. There it was, was all there. Strong the views about Taylor Swift. The most animated I've ever seen the Love It or Leave It crowd was a discussion of Taylor Swift's reputation. There you go. On Pod Save the World this week, who do we have? It was a conversation about Venezuela that I promised you guys last week that we are going to have this week. It's a reporter named Hannah Dreyer who's now at ProPublica, but she was the AP correspondent down there for three years. She was actually the last American credential to work in the country Whoa. and watched uh, Venezuela's slow descent into dictatorship in many ways of failed state. So it's a, it's a pretty riveting account of what it's like to live through that, to have you know friends and family and, and people you love around you sort of having to deal with this transition and, you know the country going to a very difficult place. So check it out. Okay. And on Pod Save the People, uh, which will be released tomorrow, Tuesday, Dory will be talking to former state's attorney for Cook County, Kim Fox. So lots of pods to check out. Okay, let's talk about Hurricane Harvey. Over the weekend, Harvey left at least five people dead, dozens injured, forced thousands upon thousands to evacuate their homes. FEMA says that more than 450,000 are likely to seek federal aid from the storm. About 30,000 people are seeking emergency shelter. Uh, currently, it's been downgraded to a tropical storm, but one that is still pounding Houston with torrential rain. It's expected to last a few more days. Probably some of you saw the terrifying warning from the National Weather Service, quote, the breadth and intensity of this rainfall are beyond anything experienced before. Catastrophic flooding is now underway and expected to continue for days. Quite the warning from the uh, from the National Weather Service. Yeah. What did you guys? What, what were some of your reactions watching this unfold over the over the weekend? I mean, I, I think it's a great reminder that you know, president has to deal with everything. Every single crisis comes to you and is on your plate, and and what it requires often is really great technocratic management. Uh, we had a, a, a FEMA administrator named Craig Fugate, who had just been working on hurricane preparedness his whole life. You know, and the guy knew how to preposition tons of supplies and, you know, the, the way the systems worked and interagency coordination and all this stuff that is not sexy. It's not interesting news when you don't care about it and don't need it, but it is so important. And so the good news is that the Trump administration has um, some folks. Tom Bossert was working at FEMA when Katrina struck. He's a number of uh, Mr. Long, who's the head of FEMA now, uh, was in the uh, was running uh the head of FEMA's hurricane program at the time of Katrina. So hopefully they have learned from the experience of, of that effort. But this is, you know, a, a catastrophic hurricane. You know, the, the Donald Trump is, is not his fault that this hit, but his team is going to have an enormous task to manage it. Yeah. It's sort of the, it's a good, it's a good example. It's probably the best example of why you need competence and experience in government, in all levels of government, forget about also the why you office. need government. Period. Why I mean, no need... other entity can possibly manage this? Yeah, I mean, it reminded me of you know in two thousand and five, 
Tommy, you and I were in Obama's Senate office. Um, Obama was a new senator, and that's when Katrina hit. Mm -hmm. And I just remember he got very involved in the response to that. And one of the things we learned there was, and one of the things he always said was, you know, a lot of people in New Orleans were abandoned even before the hurricane because there were people who were too poor and elderly and disabled to to evacuate in time. Yeah. And I think you're seeing this in, in Houston, too, that a lot of these the pictures that we've seen are people who just they could not evacuate in time. They did not have the resources to get out of there. And now, you know, are waiting to be rescued. Yeah. I mean, two thoughts. What, what are our nation's overall disaster readiness is not good. Uh, the current FEMA administration's uh, chair, Mr. Long, said we have a long way to go. Craig Fugate, the one who did it for Obama, said it sucks. So we as a country need to do a better job. But also, like you said, I mean, there are people who are poor, who are sick, who are elderly, who just can't evacuate. Love it. What did, uh, what did you think? Yeah, I just sort of had two thoughts over the weekend. One was just that the job of president really matters and that mm-hmm. when the tweeting is done and all the rest, like, it's a real administrative job. It is a job that sits on top of organizations that require presidential leadership. And what the president does in the days before a storm, during a storm, and after a storm actually do matter and make a difference on the ground. And we have somebody who's totally unsuited to it in the task. And then the other the other thing I couldn't help but think about and is, you know, <laughs> climate change doesn't care if you believe in it or not. You know, it's... I was thinking about our conversation with Al Gore when he's and I was thinking about the movie, the inconvenient sequel movie, because one of the things they talk about is just how strange the weather will look and that all of a sudden it just looks like buckets of water pouring down from the sky in ways they never saw before. I was literally bouncing off the ground. Yeah, Yeah. that it looks like a deluge. It looks like the sky is pouring water onto the ground. And so when you see the National Weather Service say, this is unprecedented, we don't know what to do with this. When you see Trump, who Dan, I think, made a good point about when he said that, you know, he's president, but he's behaving like a weather pundit. When he's like, wow, look at all this rain. Uh, But when he says, you know, this is unprecedented, people are talking about how we've never seen anything like this. Well, you know, we politicize cause and effect. Climate change is here. This is it. This is what it looks like. It yeah, looks like yeah. a hurricane all of a sudden becomes something we've never seen before. I'm going to be cheesy for one second, but it also is a reminder of how decent people in this country are. When you see like people literally driving to Houston with their boats to put them in the water to drive around neighborhoods to rescue people. When you see news people like flagging down rescue crews to save people's lives. I mean... You know, again, I'm being corny and cheesy, but it, no, you know, no, I saw the it, same it's thing. It's like extraordinary. So the, Co- the Coast Guard has rescued 1,450 people so far. Houston police have completed 2,000 rescue missions. National Guard's out there, rescue workers, neighbors, reporters saving people's lives. I mean, it is, we, look, we need these reminders yeah. <laughs> but also, right now. Yes, but what I was also thinking about, too, is like, that's acute decency. We're very good at acute decency. And it's, and climate change requires a different kind of decency, a different kind of imaginative decency of what it means to care. And like, well, it means thinking beyond the short term to the right. long term. Yeah. That, 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 when, that, that when someone's stranded on a roof, when water is rising in a car, you know, compassion kicks in and humanity kicks in and decency kicks in. And we have this fundamental challenge that we are not built to have a more expansive version of compassion. Uh, I want to get to the. I want to do one more point in the climate change thing because some people may say, "Oh, conservatives will say, well, or some conservatives will say, you know, climate is not weather, and there's no proof." And so, so I looked this up because you and I love it. We're talking about this over the weekend. Michael Mann in the Guardian 
uh, wrote about this, said, you know, climate change may not have caused Harvey, but it almost certainly exacerbated its effects. We know for a fact that the storm surge is half a foot higher than it would have been with sea levels lower. We also know that sea surface temperatures were warmer when Harvey struck, which meant 3 to 5% more moisture in the atmosphere when it hit, which meant that much more rain. So over and over Scary. again, there are all these ways where, yes, the storm probably would have hit without climate change, but climate change made worse all of the different effects, the wind speed, the surge, the amount of we rain, We don't everything. have to be defensive on this. Climate change... Yes. No one event. We don't have to be sensible. We need to be explanatory. No, of course. About no, 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 no. I'm not. I'm not saying you are. Yeah. I'm, I'm. I'm making a separate. That absolutely true. You know, there will be cold winters and cold summers, and there will be years without hurricanes and all the rest. But climate change makes storms more likely, and it makes it more likely that those storms are worse. Can That's I just it. make one other point, which is that, you know, right now I think the focus is rightly on the, the rescue effort and taking care of people there, but. Policy matters and budgets matter. And the administration has recommended cutting FEMA programs by like $667 million. They've also proposed a 16% cut to the overall budget and a 32% to the office, uh, the NOAA budget and the Office of Oceanic and Atmospheric Research. So, like, these are relevant programs that help us anticipate and manage and then solve these problems. That's why government matters. Also, also yeah. the dams were built and I think the 30s or 40s and we haven't had a significant inf- investment in the infrastructure of this country in half a century and we're coasting on the roads, bridges, rail lines and airports of another generation and it's 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 not going to last. I was going to make a more immediate point which is a couple weeks ago Trump reversed the Obama-era federal flood protection standard, which would have required federally funded infrastructure to be built to withstand extreme flooding and higher sea levels. Why? <laughs> Just You know why? Because Obama put it into place, right. and everything he does is to so... oppose Obama and reverse what he does. We should talk about the Trump response because... You know, first of all, it's it's nowhere near done. This is continuing to unfold. This is a this is an emergency that's you know uh, still playing out right now as we speak. But the New York Times over the weekend ran a piece saying uh, Trump's Twitter feed and the photos and statements released by the White House indicated that Harvey and its after- aftermath had energized Mr. Trump and called it a calculated display of energetic presidential leadership. Revealed a president genuinely riveted. Yeah. Unless uh, now they've changed some of that story. <laughs> in fairness, unless people are going to use Sheriff Clark's book as a fucking flotation device, that's not true. Yeah, yeah. He was promoting Sheriff Clark's book. He was talking about how he was going to go to Missouri and beat, and Claire McCaskill was going to lose her race. He was talking about Mexico paying for the wall. It just shows how much that the way these, the way Trump is judged, has completely been flipped on its head. Right? In, in a normal president, one tweet that was off topic would be used to say you were not focused. Be in this end. instance, the fact that like thirty to forty percent of his tweets were on topic was like, oh, the guy's on it. You know, he's got like a red hat that says USA, not MAGA. He's at Camp David for some reason. It doesn't really matter, but I don't get why you'd be there instead of at the White House. Um, but yeah, I mean, look, sitting in the sit room getting briefed. I mean, that's sort of in some ways the best you can do. But his team is talking about taking him down to Houston or Texas in, on Tuesday, which makes no sense. Yeah. Apparently he's now not do that. He's going outside some of the affected areas, yeah. but still, it's, still, it's, there's no reason to do that. It's just, ama- soon. it's just amazing. And people pointed this out that he has not used Twitter, which he's been using throughout the weekend to share a single piece of actionable information on what you can do to help the hurricane. And he has not expressed any empathy whatsoever for the families who have been evacuated and have lost everything. It's just 
I will say. And it is. It's like he's a weather pundit. It's everything's about record rainfall. We're setting new records and blah blah blah. But we have the best. He wants it on one hand to be the most intense storm ever, and then also on the other hand to show that he is the best prepared and best responding president ever. I mean, you know, like he just, help, everything's we, about the records. Donald Trump is like a living embodiment of why weather does well on the news. Like he is just interested in how cool the storm right. is, forgetting when he's on Twitter that he's president. I will say, in fairness to him. Uh, the fact that he was wearing a USA hat is a sign that he's taking this seriously because he didn't want to put in the time to have his hair done. Uh, so that's why he wears the hat. You realize that's why he wears the hat. And that's why he's pulled down so low, because whatever's going on beneath the hat, it has to be completely covered. The, the whole I think he thing... just wanted a red hat yeah. that said USA. No, so just... no, no, no. It's not. He knew he had to do the one photo. He and he. and Well, look, I think he likes how he looks in these hats, but he puts on the hat and he puts it down so low because it, it has to, he has to conceal whatever the truth is. So just the one, hat's a lie. one thought on, on him. People call him a master <laughs> marketer, but this is going to show that the marketing techniques that work around real estate do not work in the government. Just like a big splashy event talking about how great everything is and how everything's going to be done perfectly does not comport with the reality of a multi-year cleanup process and the expectations management and the honesty and the transparency that is necessary to make people understand and sympathize with what you're doing. That's exactly right. They are in big, big trouble for the way they've talked about this. One of his close advisors told Politico, quote, he enjoys playing the role. He knows what a president is supposed to look like during something like this. And what is this? This is the mean? pundit aspect Seated? about him. This is the weather pundit. But like you said, Tommy, this is a multi-week, multi-year effort that uh, is not going to go away. But okay, also, we have but wait, to- oh, sorry, just that's also not true because tweeting good luck is not what a president is supposed to look like either. Anyway, fine. Okay. His advisor is an idiot. We agree on that. Good. Okay. Up next, we will talk to uh, former deputy FEMA administrator Richard Serino. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule Damn. is to know what's important to you and make it a priority. You know, you know, you know. Have you been able to this. squeeze that special thing into your schedule, John? Yeah, that's. I think it's thanks to therapy. Therapy can help you find what matters to you, so you can do more of it. Mm-hmm. More time for you. I. Uh... You know, because we've been doing what a weekday, mm-hmm. I actually put that in my therapy spot. You know, I, I replaced therapy with doing an extra podcast. Mm. It was a huge mistake. So uh, what do you spend time doing in therapy now? Well, now I brought therapy back. I okay, added therapy good, back good. to good. another time because uh, it turns out talking that's about... going to make the jokes better. <laughs> well, it's really going to make things better for the team. <laughs> <laughs> if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible and Suited to your schedule, just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash PSA today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash PSA. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews. But now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. When booking with other vacation rental apps sounds like this. This place doesn't look like the pictures. Ah! Is there a door behind all those spiders? It's time to try one that sounds more like a vacation. Ah, this is perfect. 
Relax, you booked a Verbo. On the pod today, we have the former deputy FEMA administrator from the Obama administration, Richard Serino. Richard, welcome to the pod. Great, great to be here. Mr. Serino, thanks so much for doing this. A question for you uh, about Harvey. You know, can you talk about what the situation looks like on the ground and how this compares to to past storms or disasters and, and whether you think, you know, we're prepared for this or if it's even possible to be prepared for a incident of this magnitude? Well, just from the images that we've all seen on TV, it shows that it's still very much in a life rescue, saving lives at this point. It's very important to realize that, you know, this is going to go on for a long time. Uh, this is the storm itself was, you know, we haven't had a Category 4 or any hurricane, a major hurricane hit the United States in 12 years. And a Category 4 came with very little notice. Uh, it originally was, was going to be a small tropical storm. And then getting the flooding, the amounts that we're hearing, already 34 inches in some places, going up to 50 inches over the next few days, that wow. it's, it's stuck in one place and it's continuing to rain. Um, so there's the damage that happened in uh, severe damage from Category 4 in Corpus Christi and Rockport, but now also we're seeing in a large urban area, seeing the heavy rain and the flooding that's happening there. And I think one thing that's important over the last period of time is that we've seen uh, a lot of headway made and how people are able to work together. And uh, yeah, the fact that the state uh, is working in the request of being met from FEMA and uh, then they're communicating with the local officials as well. As well. And the uh, state emergency management director in Texas, Nim Kidd, is you know one of the people that's been around for a while. He's been through a lot of the floods last year, obviously not as serious as this. Uh, but he has you know, the experience and also a lot of the relationships built already. You were involved in a lot of natural disasters at your time at FEMA. You know, you were by President Obama's side during Hurricane Sandy. What do you do? What does the government do to prepare for a hurricane like this? And then what are some of the most important steps you take immediately following the, uh, the hurricane? I think initially, and to prepare for, one of the things is to move resources uh, as close to the affected area but safe so they're able to go in as soon as it's safe for the uh, responders to go in. Uh, for example, moving some incident management assistant teams, some of the urban search and rescue teams that are able to go into the area ahead of time, moving some water and blankets and food into the area ahead of time, but also reaching out to a lot of the partners as well, uh, working with the Red Cross, working with a lot of the other voluntary organizations such as the Salvation Army, Team Rubicon, getting people that are going to be there um, know, able to help as soon as it's safe for them, but realizing that uh, it, the first responders are really the ones that are, are really making a huge difference, the uh, people in the local communities. And one thing that, you know, we've seen on TV and getting reports from people who are on the ground is neighbors helping neighbors. And I don't think we can underestimate how important that is, is for neighbors to help neighbors as they bring their community together. Um, they're the ones who know whoever's living in the house, whether they're elderly or alone. They're the ones who are going to be able to help them get out. Uh, I think that that's important. That we have to, in this part of the rescue, that um, really reach out to a lot of different folks in order to see how they can help out as well. So the president in a moment like this has both an administrative role but also a public-facing role. You know, we've seen the president over the past couple of days 
tweet about the storm, but also tweet about other things, sort of talk about his political opponents, talk about a supporter's book, which are obviously very strange and unusual in a moment like this. But put aside how off that is to say publicly, does that have any impact? Does that have any effect on what people are doing? Are there any negative repercussions when the president does these kinds of things? Well, I think the professionals that are at FEMA, at the uh, city and the state level, at the tribal, those are mostly career professionals that have a lot of experience. Uh, The FEMA administrator has experience uh, dealing with uh, major incidents, both when he was at FEMA and Alabama previously. So I think the the people who are career and the head of um, the administrator for FEMA now are folks with experience who are going to do the job and continue to work uh, and continue to save lives and continue to, to reach out and to get people sheltered and get them taken care of. I think leadership is actually a key issue that we have to look at, that we have to look at in all disasters and how leadership and how important that is. And looking at what, what leaders can do, and I think we've seen great leadership from, as I mentioned, Brock, from NIMCID, the state director, uh, from the governor of Texas. We've seen people who can uh, reach out, and now's the time for rescue. And then as we uh, start to move forward, it, how we can start to look at you know, the coordination, the communication that's necessary, and the collaboration, how people are able to work together. I think one part that's important is also to look at how compassionate it is and how important compassion is it is at a time like this as the professionals are doing their jobs to rescue people as the neighbors help neighbors, but after they get tired and move on, have the professionals help. But look in for what other people can do and how they can help and people able to reach out and hopefully um, can make donations, whether it's to their favorite volunteer agency, somebody that they work with and know, or the Red Cross, uh, Salvation Army, Team Rubicon, there's a whole bunch of those. Uh, But now's the time for compassion. Now's the time for people to reach out and to help. And I think leadership is, is absolutely key during a time of crisis. You know, that was actually the, the last question we wanted to ask you is, I think, you know, you, you see these extraordinary acts of, of courage and compassion on TV, people rescuing their neighbors, first responders. People listening probably want to know what they can do today. Do, do you have recommended charities they could go to right this second and, and give 10 bucks or whatever they can afford to give? Yes, I would say that the, the three I mentioned are great. The Red Cross, the Salvation Army, uh, Team Rubicon, which is a veteran group that helps people, uh, veterans and people who aren't veterans but led by veterans going in that will help rebuild the communities. And I think that also it's time for businesses that can step up and help out as well, uh, both through uh, contributions, uh, as Airbnb has done. They've opened up uh, you know, a site where people can open their homes for free to help the other, whether it's the survivors or some of the people that are coming in to help as well. And these disasters are they're not easy. They're complex issues. They're complex incidents that we have to look and that's when we bring together the whole of community the federal state local governments we bring together the private uh, companies we bring together the uh, nonprofits as i mentioned we bring in the faith-based community which is huge they're in communities throughout this country and how they are able to do it and how they're able to help out in the communities and then reaching out to larger faith-based communities but also reaching out to the people and understanding that this is about the people, and this is about how we can help the individuals, that this is about uh, having no ego in this, no blame. This is about making sure that the survivors, the people are taken care of. Um, This is not going to be a quick event. This is going to be a very long event. This is going to go on for months. It's going to go on for years. 
and looking at the housing issues for tens of thousands of people, as it looks like now, if not more. So it's going to be a, a long event, and this is a time for us to, to make sure we're doing everything we can for the survivors. Richard, thank you so much for joining us, and um, we really appreciate uh, all the incredible work you did at FEMA over the years. So we appreciate you stopping by. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you. Take care. Thanks. Uh, and again, if you guys want to donate to the Red Cross, uh, you can text Harvey to 90999. Uh, you can also donate to the Salvation Army, Team Rubicon, Feeding Texas, Coalition for the Homeless, a number of other groups that we'll tweet out later. Uh, we should also tell you we're going to donate some of the proceeds from this episode of Pod Save America to the hurricane relief efforts. When we come back, we will talk about Joe Arpaio. You can live out your MasterChef dreams when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Beyonce, Katanji Brown Jackson, the lady who spent 500 days in a cave. Women are all around us. And this Women's History Month, the Crooked Store is celebrating with a pop-up shop featuring favorites from women of color founded companies. For a limited time, the She Commerce pop-up shop has everything from delicious goodies to kids books to candles, all from small companies that we love. It is a great way to support women of color while treating a woman in your own life. Maybe that's yourself to a sweet distraction from the endless horrors that we face every single day. Happy Women's History Month to all. Check out what's in stock at crooked.com slash store for this month only. So as most of the media's attention was focused on Hurricane Harvey on Friday, (laughs) rightly so, Donald Trump pardoned Sheriff Joe Arpaio, who violated the Fourth Amendment, tortured Latinos, citizens as well as non-citizens, in what he himself referred to as concentration camps, and showed no remorse, served no time. Wasn't even sentenced. Wasn't sentenced yet. This, to me, is one of the worst things that Donald Trump has done. And, you know, I didn't fully appreciate how, and I talked about this on Thursday's pod a little bit, I didn't appreciate how bad... Arpaio was until I dug in. Like I was yeah, like, you guys yeah. did a good job. I was like, oh, he's, he's the bigoted sheriff. Ten that, cities that um, I remember knew that that uh, you know that supported Trump yeah. and he spoke at rallies and stuff like that. But when you dig into the tent cities and you read about what he did, it is it's it's hard to believe that it, happened in America. He, He's proud of it. If you listen to proud of it. to the Daily Today, Michael Barbaro's show on the New York Times, I was going to recommend people listen to it as well. Great pod. He um, <laughs> he uh, took he, uh, our pilot takes a New York Times reporter through one of the camps and is bragging about how crappy the food is and is he puts on the Food Network and the Weather Channel to torture them because these are outdoor tents and it's 130 degrees and he wants these people to see a different existence so they'll go to Canada. He said, I mean, he's just a horrible person. He set up webcams in women's bathrooms that people could look at online to like watch the conditions in the jails to see this. This is this is what Joe Arpaio did in these jails. He's a it is a lot of people died in those jails. People yep. died. I mean, so what the, what this pardon says is 
that law enforcement officers are allowed to refuse judicial commands to obey the Constitution so long as they are loyal to President Trump or friends of President Trump. To me, it is a completely different category than most things he has done so far. And I think it is absolutely an impeachable offense. Well, also, you went to Jeff Sessions and asked them to drop the case. So he's tried to meddle in this process multiple times, which is just a... It, we, this is one of the moments we have to remind ourselves, this is a stunning breach of protocol. This is an absolute disregard for the rule of law, period. You know, the the pardon power itself <clears throat> is strange. It's a strange yeah. power because it's hard to really understand why the president can sort of intercede in this way because it is basically a rejection of the court system. It is a check against the courts and it's the logic of it. It's It's all pretty murky, which is why it's always treated so carefully and when there are departures whether it's in the clinton administration and mark rich or the bush administration and scooter libby or the first bush administration and casper weinberger or ford and nixon like the pardon power is delicate when it's abused people there's a political cost but this itself is such a radical departure because there was no process there was no doj process he hasn't even been sentenced there was no urgency behind this and also it's not it's for contempt for violating the Constitution, which is just not something the pardon power had been used for before. But it's also what, what Tommy just mentioned, which is he, he asked Jeff Session whether it would be possible for the government to drop the criminal case, was, avi- was advised it would be inappropriate. <laughs> and then after talking with Sessions, Trump decided to let the case go to trial because he knew he would grant him the pardon anyway. Yeah. This is completely different. This is a, this is another case. I mean, so someone, a couple of legal analysts were saying, Arpaio's pardon demonstrates a pattern where Trump tries to invent, end investigations of his friends, thus demonstrating corrupt intent. It can be used as evidence in Mueller's investigation of whether he obstructed justice with the firing of Jim Comey. I mean, it is just... It's, just, it's also a reminder of how useless his entire staff is. Like, you go to the attorney general and say, hey, can I, can I stop this uh, case from proceeding? He says, no. He's like, oh, I'll figure out another way to do it. Like, you bring in a new chief of staff who's going to ride herd on the process and make sure things get done the right way? Apparently not. You ask Sarah Huckabee Sanders whether he's going to talk about Joe Arpaio at the event. She says, no, absolutely not. He absolutely he t- goes right ahead and talks about it. These people are useless around him. I'm done talking about them. Yeah, I, I, I sort of took. I like sort of took three. Like, what are the three lessons from the parting of a pile? One, it is a lesson to racist law enforcement that that as long as you're loyal to Trump, he'll support you and he'll he'll have your backs. And it's it's just a powerful message to them. Two, it is a message to uh, his collaborators and to anyone under investigation by Mueller. And and then three, it is just a message about personal loyalty to Trump. You know, one of the things that was interesting about the daily conversation with Arpaio is this sort of is a kind of a perfect representation of how Trump is because it's has no dis- respect for the rule of law. It very clearly kind of redounds to his benefits personally, but also it affords him the chance to feel like such a good guy because it's very clear that. He likes Arpaio. Arpaio got behind him. They're buddies. They're buddies. The one thing that came away from this conversation, which was, I re- which is really worth listening to, is that Arpaio is kind of charming. You know, he's sort of funny and befuddled. And even this reporter who had been investigating Arpaio for years and knows about the horrors that Arpaio inflicted on a lot of innocent people, the racist policies and the yeah. deaths and all the rest, she said it was hard to keep it in the front of her mind. And 
Arpaio comes across as this sad sack, lonely old man who whose wife is sick and who Trump called because Arpaio said that it meant so much to him that he had this role in the administration. So it gives Trump the chance to feel like a good person while also protecting himself and putting forward his racist I, policies. I would add that it, it, there's one more very important lesson. It sends a message to people of color in this country. It yeah. sends a message to people who've been discriminated against in this country that says the president of the United States doesn't care. He doesn't think you matter and he doesn't see you. Yeah. And that and and to me, pardoning someone who has tortured people because of their ethnicity, because of who they are and where they come from, pardoning that person, not even letting that person serve time at all for their crime that they were convicted of. I mean, there is a process for pardons. Like you said, it's extraordinary power. There's a process you go through with the Department of Justice. You show remorse. You serve some time. Maybe they cut five or 10 years off your sentence. This is the usual process with a pardon. This is completely different. This was a foregone conclusion before the man was sentenced because he was a political supporter of Donald Trump. Yeah. And because Trump is a racist, so doesn't see it as a problem, so just felt bad for a sad old man. So some Republicans did come out against this mm-hmm. and criticize him. John McCain had a pretty solid statement. Jeff Flake had a eh. okay statement <laughs> that was not as solid as John McCain's. We should talk about Jeff Flake's statement because I find Jeff Flake's decision-making process around how to address Trump fucking fascinating. Because It's the Dean Heller strategy. It's, it's both ineffective... And also not enough. Like, and it hurts him politically without actually doing enough to please people like us. It's like I, I don't, I don't get it at all. So I Dean don't Heller. Get, this is why I, Jeff Flake and Dean Heller aren't going to be senators in 2019. And we won't be that sad about it, will we? <laughs> um, Paul Ryan did the rare statement through a spokesperson that says that the speaker disagrees with the decision, <laughs> which is as much as you're going to get from Paul Ryan. But of course, for Paul Ryan. People on the right were saying, oh, he's done. Where he's, this is, Bannon's going to go after him. Breitbart's going to go after him. I can't believe he came out against this. Um, so you do have some Republicans speaking out against this. Uh, on a separate issue, uh, Rex Tillerson was also on Chris Wallace this weekend and said, basically said that Trump speaks for himself and does not necessarily speak for American values, which was extraordinary. It was extraordinary. It, it, any other weekend, <laughs> it would be one of the more shocking things that's happened in politics this entire administration yeah. i mean he said the president speaks for himself then he said i have spoken i have made my own comments as to our values as well as in a speech i gave to the state department this past week he's distancing himself from the president of the united states i think it hopefully it speaks to the fact that tillerson is completely fed up with the way he is treated in personal matters and the way he's you know Made, been made a joke, uh, and he's w- willing to walk out the door pretty soon and start talking about what he's seen. But that is, it is a remarkable comment to me. Mattis also, did you see that Mattis yeah. uh, gave hold a the speech, line? Yeah, gave a speech to troops that was basically in in Afghanistan, saying you need to hold the line until we learn to treat each other better in the U.S. Yeah, now that I think could be interpreted any one of many ways, but it, it is. Something weird's going on, man. People are fed up in those buildings, and rightly so. It's feeling, walk out. It's feeling very banana republic lately. I yeah. Don't don't walk out. We need to try for the moment. Just yeah. stay chill out, buddies. Well, so where so all, I mean, we're not expecting a lot of courage from Republicans or or pretty much any courage from Republicans anymore. But where all this matters, where these Republicans speaking out matters, is in this pardon thing. It all kind of intersects with Mueller's investigations here because Mueller is issuing subpoenas through a grand jury. If the witnesses that he subpoenas do not show up, they will be held in contempt. 
Trump has just issued a pardon for someone who was held in contempt. Oh my God, that's so weird. I didn't even really make that connection. <laughs> um, so what? Uh, when, when yeah. This this uh, pardon sends a signal that he is essentially nullifying Mueller's enforcement tool by pardoning those who defy orders. I mean, so we have to figure out what happens when Trump starts issuing pardons in the Mueller investigation. And, right, and pardons to prevent people from testifying to conceal information in an investigation is the definition of obstruction of justice. Shredding papers is not illegal. Shredding papers to obstruct justice is illegal. You can, doing things that are technically allowed become illegal when you're doing them for the purpose of blocking an investigation. The the 12-step process we go through every time we realize something about Donald Trump is just as horrible as he's been telling us it is. It's so <laughs> frustrating. He is, he's been chanting, lock her up about Hillary Clinton for like a year and a half. And like, oh no, oh, well, weird. He doesn't have any respect for the rule of law. Like, what a shock, Paul Ryan. You bozos. I mean, it's just like watching this happen in slow motion every time is so infuriating because, of course, he's going to pardon his moron son or whoever was colluding with these Russian officials or lying to Congress or lying to whomever. Yeah. yeah. You don't have to look too far for the corrupt intent. It is in your face. It <laughs> is everywhere. He says it in interviews. <laughs> yeah. He says it in interviews. My intent is corrupt. You guys, but my I'm... intent. Hello. My, my intent is corrupt. MAGA. <laughs> I'm hearing that Jared and Ivanka have a lot of respect for the rule of law, though. Jared and Ivanka. I feel very sad about their move to D.C., Vanity, Vanity Fair tells us. Yes. I didn't they even get fe- to that yet. I they, read feel, they feel like they've been, they've been sacrificed in D.C. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Because, good, good, good. because this has been such a depressing episode, can mm-hmm. we just talk about our boy, Seb Gorka, for one minute? Oh, I forgot about Seb Gorka. <laughs> yeah. Gorka Seb out. Gorka. Gorka. Ouch. Back to Breitbart. I love all these clowns leaving the most powerful job they will ever have, a job they had no business having, were never qualified to have, and acting like going back to their racist zine is what they've wanted their entire lives. <laughs> they refer to it like it's, um, they're like, we go back to the tanks, we go back to the, <laughs> yeah. we're going to go get our arms and we're going to take arms and we're now yeah. and more powerful than you could imagine. Yeah. It's like, you guys work for a shitty blog. Calm down. You're playing Call of Duty at work, you <laughs> loser. Does uh, I think we have Seb Gorka here in the studio. Is it's, that correct? <laughs> Oopsie doopsie. I was fired while on vacation and wrote a fake resignation letter. <laughs> he was on vacation for two weeks. <laughs> Did you hear that? The, the, He's been working there for eight months. No one takes a two-week vacation no one takes in four a two-week, years. No one takes a two-week vacation at the White House. It's Except for Jared and Ivanka. It's never been done. Some two White House weeks. staffers were saying that uh, some White House staffers were saying that Seb Gorka's resignation letter was quote incredibly woke. <laughs> okay. Don't think you're using it right. Yeah, yeah you guys I don't <laughs> think you're using yeah, the word gonna... in the proper Look, context. You guys might yeah. want to check out this thing. Yeah. <laughs> Dictionary.com. You cannot be woke if you're wearing a Hungarian fascist uniform. That's it's actually not possible to be woke in that the Venn diagram of being woke. And wearing fascist regalia from the 1940s. There's no overlap. <laughs> I like this. You know, uh, Seb Gorka, it matters not at all that he was there. It matters not at all that he was gone, except for the fact that someone like that should never have been in the White House. Exactly. But again, that is the problem, right? The fact that he's gone doesn't matter because the problem was that someone like him could be there in the first place because the problem is Trump. There was a reporter who I'm just I'm not going to name by name because I'm not trying to be critical of any 
person, but was was defending Seb Gork on the way out, saying, "Well, it's overblown. This His influence guy. is overblown. He was overblown that he was in, not in a Nazi party." I mean, the fact that this was a question is kind of a big deal. His, his Nazi associations that, were overblown. The fact, the, the fact I mean, that he was—he had a fake PhD. The fact that he worked in the White House without a clearance and said he did national security, but really just did cable hits all day. He I mean, wore he was the a, uniform <laughs> to the inauguration. He, he wasn't subtle about it. He was a walking joke. He he embodies the the clowns that are staffing this administration. It's a fucking sideshow. <laughs> it. <laughs> But anyway, it, but you know, there was, there was a there was a story. I this still morning. want to be angry about Joe Arpaio because I'm so. It's awful. The Democrats win the House back, and they happen to drop impeachment uh, articles against Donald Trump. The pardon of Joe Arpaio should be at the top of the fucking high list. crimes or whatever we want it to be. I know, I know. We always say this, but like, I still think we need for future presidents to have some norms in place where we talk about what is impeachable and what's not, and it's not just to the whims of a political majority. Even though that's technically true, this is impeachable. What he did. It is so outside the bounds of anything. It is, an, it is a severe abuse of the pardon power. Yeah. Angry. I'm angry about I, it. I, I know. I know. Anyway, anything else on Seb Gorka? All I was going to say, well, you know, speaking of the White House comings and goings, as mm-hmm. always, Jonathan Swan with uh, a leak from within the administration or from someone recently in the administration. You don't know if it's, is it, is it Bannon trying to attack the globalists or is the globalists saying, look how good we are at being globalists? You'll never know. But there was a report this morning that, of basically what Trump was saying in a meeting about tariffs. Did you see this? And he basically, there's this, it's a, it's basically a transcript of an Oval Office meeting. And it's Trump saying to Kelly, you haven't been here for some of these meetings. I just want you to hear what I say to these people. Give me the tariffs. Give me some tariffs. I want tariffs, but they never give me tariffs. Global, he calls Gary Cohen a globalist. Oh That's God. what made me think it was Bannon. Yes. Uh, well, Yes, but it's a little bit also a look what we kill thing too. You know, you can, because <laughs> you can't tell. You can't tell if it's the globalists proud of their globalism or Bannon trying to point out their globalism. But so, but it's a reminder that for all the ways in which this is theater and we have this crazy scenario and people like Gorka coming and going and Bannon coming and going and who's in and who's out. Like Donald Trump is sitting at the Oval Office desk saying, "Give me tariffs. Let give me my trade war." So they're playing with live ammunition every single day. That's it. That's yeah. all I wanted to say about it. Okay, when we come back, we will talk to President of Demos, Heather McGee. Angie's List is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. On Pod Save America today, we are very likely to be joined by the president of Demos, Heather McGee. Heather, welcome to the pod. Thanks so much for having me. So it's been a few weeks after Charlottesville. It's a few days after the Arpaio pardon. A lot of your work at Demos involves having frank conversations about racial inequality, systemic racism. What do those conversations sound like right now? You know, I think the country in many ways is waking up to the way that white supremacy um, not only has been historically an organizing principle in our economy and in our politics, but is still alive. 
um, and how, frankly, white supremacy is about more than just statues. It's also about statutes. And Demos has been working as a public policy organization whose mission is to create an America where we all have an equal say in our democracy and an equal chance in our economy. And the most vivid contemporary form of white supremacy today that we are seeing is in the right-wing attack on the right to vote and voter suppression. The very idea, which is in many ways a a neo-Confederate idea, um, that members of the state should limit the franchise with, uh, quote, uh, almost surgical precision, uh, as the federal court uh, described in the North Carolina uh, voting case, to limit the franchise in racially discriminatory ways. That's how we're seeing white supremacy act today. And it's how we're seeing mainstream Republicans uh, wink and nod to that ideology that some groups of people are better than others and some groups of citizens should have a voice and some shouldn't. Um, Heather, during the campaign, I heard you you did a great interview with Ezra Klein. You did a couple of them. And if folks enjoyed this conversation, they should check those out as well. But you talked about how you thought there was some value in the sort of dog whistle politics of race that have been played by Democrats and Republicans, more so Republicans for a long time, becoming more overt and more honest because this is going to be an ugly debate and it should happen in the open for us to actually heal and have honest conversations and move on. Do you feel that way still? Do you think that this conversation is one that is ugly and necessary or has it become something else? That's a really good question. Um, When I did those podcasts with Ezra, you know, I really hoped that Trump turning what had been a 50-year mostly Republican dog whistle, one that really denigrates the identity of people of color, and then importantly, right, this is the move, links it, uh, links people of color to government, and in so doing, uh, undermines white support for common solutions, undermines white support for government and for unions. I thought that actually having someone like Donald Trump, who most of the political class was repudiating, make that silent dog whistle into a bullhorn would be good, would help exercise the demon in many ways from our politics. Of course, I, I did not think that he would be able to so convincingly make it a powerful and irresistible political formula for the majority of white voters in this country. I suppose I I should have been uh, more realistic, given that, in fact, uh, the majority of white voters have not voted for a Democrat since Lyndon Johnson signed the Civil Rights Act and the Southern strategy really began. But I think what we're seeing now is a lot of people who, of, of all races, frankly, and ethnicities, who thought that the kind of uh, torch-wielding white supremacy that was on full display in Charlottesville uh, was a thing of the past or a thing of the, the, the shadows of the internet, um, are starting to make the connections, frankly, between uh, the logic of white supremacy and the core logic in the right-wing narrative that we see on Fox News and Breitbart. Um, You know, you can't dine on a diet of stereotypes of criminal aliens who are killing, you know, white children for breakfast, and then, you know, Muslim terrorists who are 
operating Sharia law camps in the desert for lunch (laughs) and then, you know, black thugs in the inner city for dinner, as most Fox News viewers do, uh, and not start to um, have a logic of white supremacy creep into your thoughts and creep into the mainstream of our politics. Yeah. I mean, look, I think all of us were unrealistic about the chances Donald Trump had about of getting elected. I think you were quite realistic and honest about the ugliness of, of racial politics in the U.S. So one other thing you talked about is that your think tank has done this research showing that racism actually harms white people uh, as well as, as people of color. Can you talk about that research and whether you think talking about the issue and framing it in that way is able to break through with you know the, the white working class voter that we're all agonizing about since November? Yeah, sure. I'm happy to. I'm actually um, working on a book uh, about the costs of racism to white people um, right now. And it's been a fascinating journey to really understand and try to articulate that ultimately in an interconnected society, our fates are linked and that there are personal, economic, and social costs of racism to white people. Um, A really vivid example of this is in the financial crisis where uh, Demos was working as part of our economic inequality work back in the early 2000s to really raise the alarm about the predatory practices that were distorting the financial market, that were absolutely discriminatory in many different ways in the housing market, payday lending, etc. And those bad loans, those uh, discriminatory loans, um, those subprime loans were then packaged, of course, and sold across uh, the financial system and ended up creating the financial crisis of 2008, which of course cost tens of trillions of dollars in lost wealth and jobs, not just for the African Americans and Latinos who were targeted in the original instance, but for everyone. So that is a a vivid example of the economic cost of racism, not just to the people who are originally targeted, um, but to all of us. And I think we're also seeing that in terms of the way that our democracy is so distorted There is a a racial logic to, obviously, the intentional discrimination that Republicans have been found guilty of across the country uh, since the election of President Obama that is also undermining our democracy for everyone. Um, Barriers to voting and registration that have been erected are obviously targeted towards African Americans and Latinos, but trap up white college students, white women who don't have the right ID with with their current name on it. Etc. Do you see anybody that's sort of scrambling that divide well, that's sort of overcoming that racial divide to talk about issues for working people, either a message or messenger that you think sort of has this right? You know, it's funny. In some ways, you you have to actually go back to Jesse Jackson and um, his Rainbow Coalition. He had a really beautiful way. It it may not have occurred to most people to go back to Jesse Jackson's uh, political speeches lately, but uh, I think you'll find something pretty surprising and wonderful in it, that um, he had a beautiful way of talking about the loss of jobs and economic problems in the country, and making it very clear that the uh, ruling elite were the ones who benefited from uh, a divide and conquer strategy. My colleague Ian Haney Lopez and I wrote an article during the heat of the Democratic primary um, between Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders called How Economic Populists Like Bernie Sanders Should Talk About Racism, uh, because the idea there was that we were 
being forced as Democrats to make a false choice between being very real about the racial and gender divides in this country and racial and gender oppression and uh, speaking up about the economic inequality. It's so silly to think that um, Democrats, this sort of argument that Democrats are not sufficiently economically populist because of, you know, Black Lives Matter activists in Ferguson, right? Um, It's not them who is, you know, it's not people who want to see racial and gender justice who are keeping the Democrats from having an economic populist message and agenda. It's their donors and it's uh, wealthy people uh, and corporate interests that have infiltrated into the heart of the party. And so it's very frustrating, the idea that there should be this choice when, of course, not only is the majority of working class people of color and women and immigrants Today, working in the service industry, uh, but working class people of color and white people have an enormous amount to gain from uniting their interests. Yeah, it's very frustrating. And, you know, we were on the Obama campaign in 2008 and didn't try to make that choice, right? It was about economic justice and racial justice and social justice. And, um, and you know, it, it, it wasn't a choice. So just about one year ago, you were a guest on C-SPAN when a white man from North Carolina named Gary called in and said he was prejudiced and that he feared black people. And you were incredibly calm and thoughtful in your response. The exchange went viral. Apparently, he called in last week to say that he's changed and that you guys are now personal friends. So what what happened in the intervening year? Did you guys like see Dunkirk together? What's going on? <laughs> Uh, we did. We actually went to a casino together. We have. Uh, we've, oh. we've gotten a beer together. We've had the, the beer summit of the uh, the prejudiced oh the prejudiced caller and the black advocate or whatever I am. <laughs> you know, I was not expecting what happened uh, last August at all. Right? I mean, I went on C-SPAN's Washington Journal to talk about economic policy, to talk about Demos's support for debt-free college, to talk about the election. And, you know, here's this guy who spends most of his time watching TV in the foothills of the Appalachian Mountains in North Carolina, and he was moved for some reason to call into the show and admit his prejudice and ask for my help. And, you know, I think that this was in the dog days of a really racially charged summer when you had Donald Trump, you know, coming down those gold-plated stairs at Trump Tower and calling Mexicans rapists and criminals and then going on to say that he didn't have a racist bone in his body. So for someone who seemed like, you know, an everyday guy, to admit on national television that he was prejudiced, to me, felt like a call that I couldn't ignore. And I was moved, and I gave him some ideas off the top of my head, um, get to know black families who are not the stereotypes that he was uh uh, describing, uh, most importantly, change what he consumes in terms of TV news that so overrepresents black crime and underrepresents white crime. But I also importantly told him to to pick up a book and to read about the history of this country. And really, that is what has done it. Um, Gary would later on join Twitter to find me. His first tweet was, how does this thing work? Um, and uh, I, he direct messaged me and I, I communicated with him and, and we had a phone call. And, and soon after, he, he went to the bookstore and got a whole bunch of books from uh, the new Jim Crow to Brian Stevenson's Just Mercy. He loves Cornell West now. I mean, he has really taken what he calls uh, a walk to really 
understand how it is that we got to this place in this country. And, you know, he gives me a lot of credit. We've, we have become friends. I did go down to North Carolina for work a few months later and, and, and did meet with him. And I was actually back in North Carolina just uh, last week interviewing him for the book that I'm working on. He gives me a lot of credit, but I give him a lot of credit for being willing to be humble, to have a little bit of sort of joy and wonder whenever he comes upon another prejudiced thought in his mind. He, he loves to kind of catch himself in that moment um, for being willing to talk to his friends, all of whom are kind of your prototypical Trump voters. Um, he's lost some friends uh, over this transformation that he's made, but I, I can say that he's also gained one for sure. It sounds like you need to uh, put out this sort of anti-racism, you know, course list, the syllabus that you've put together for this guy. <laughs> I know. I was thinking it's, it's it's funny that someone being kind and gracious on cable TV is what goes viral these days. But <laughs> like, it's pretty amazing that you uh, you had that poise in that moment because, boy, I, you could see that going a different direction. It's true. I do think that we are um, we are suffering from. I mean, this goes without saying, but a tremendous lack of leadership, not just from Donald Trump, who's obviously, you know, making it very clear whose side he's on, but also we have not as a country for really 50 years since the civil rights movement waned, had an honest reckoning about the way that this country was founded uh, on a notion of racial hierarchy and on the lie that some groups of people are better than others. You know, there are other societies that have had truth and reconciliation commissions that have made sure that education from the earliest levels um, is very clear about our past. And, you know, we, I think, as Americans, hold very dear to a mythology of American innocence. It is heartbreaking to engage even just a little bit in the truth of how much racial violence and oppression has shaped our society and and still does today. And yet, the only way that we can actually get beyond it, and I think really all of us, you know, white people, people of color, want to get beyond it, want to be able to have a country that is, you know, fully lives out the potential of its humanity and fully lives out the potential of being uh, a multiracial demos, right? The name of my organization is demos, but it means the people of a nation. We've got to be honest about it. And we have so much denialism from white supremacy and white nationalists, obviously, but even on to the kind of mainstream racial grievance that is now uh, kind of the majority opinion, particularly among white working class voters, the idea that racism no longer exists against people of color, that racial competition is a zero-sum game and progress for people of color has meant that has come at the expense of white people. We've gone backwards in some ways in our racial discourse. And I think it's going to take leaders in the private sector, in the public sector, in schools, in faith groups, um, to really uh, stand up and say that we can't keep lying to ourselves and that it's going to take work, but we should take some good old-fashioned American pride in doing that work. Yeah, and Gary's story is instructive here. You know, it starts with turning off the TV, picking up a book, and having a real conversation, you know? That's yeah. right. Heather, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. And uh, come back again soon. All right, my pleasure. Thank you, guys. Thank Thanks. you. Take care. Bye. All right. We get great guests on this show, by the way. We got great guests. Great guests. They're very smart. They're very thoughtful. 
Heather was excellent. Richard Serena was excellent. We had a good show today. We had a good show. Anyone want to talk about Game of Thrones? Uh, look, some people spoiler were asking. Alert. There's no spoilers. We're not going to talk about the show itself, but we will talk about the viewing experience. I went over to uh, John and Emily's. <laughs> <laughs> you should have seen Lovett's face. He did not. Is know that, that even Bill, the Game of Thrones music? He did not know Bill was going to play. I think that. that's just not even. I think that's just generic action music. Now that's what we're at. Thanks, Bill. All right, great. The, uh, <laughs> there was one moment where Emily did turn to me and say, "This is my house." When there was a debate over whether it was acceptable to start cooking tortellini at the 40-minute mark. But I realized <laughs> in the way that she... Emily quietly went about her business cooking tortellini while watching the tortellini. video. But in her tone back to me, I did realize that I was wrong. <sighs> yeah. Aren't you glad you weren't there, Tom? <laughs> yeah, although I TiVo'd it because uh, Hannah's family's in town and then went to start it at like 7.30 and it just wouldn't work. Should we talk about why Hannah's family was in town, Tommy? Should we talk about it, Tommy? Oh, yeah, I got engaged this weekend. Tommy got engaged! <laughs> Tommy got engaged this weekend. What an outro. What an outro. I figured we'd save it for the outro. We, we I wanted we, to look at Tommy to make sure some, he wanted to talk about we, it. I know, I know. some news. Yeah, I, um, for the first time in our relationship, made a big stink about demanding a birthday party as a bit of a birthday princess, birthday prince. I don't want to be the gender normative. Um, yeah, I demanded uh, that Hannah throw me a party, but what it actually was was a a ruse to get a bunch of people in one place and uh, proposed to her Saturday morning and got to tell her that her entire family was landing at LAX Amazing. in the next uh, half hour. I was talking to... Uh, Such a so happy my day. birthday party was her engagement party. I was talking to Hannah's dad about what happened if they, right when they landed they called you and you're just like... She said, no, just get back on the plane. Get back on the <laughs> Stay plane. Stay on the tarmac. <laughs> Stay on the tarmac. There's, uh, you, yeah, there's some preparatory work that goes into these things that, that helps you uh, ensure that doesn't happen. Well, congrats, Tommy. And, Thanks, uh, guys. And we know... How you'll be suited up at the wedding. <laughs> oh, that's one right. more. Don't one sponsor more, content, my life. One, 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 one more year. Of don't, say, don't even say their names because that's not guaranteed yet. Indochina, <laughs> you, want, you want to see some bros in suits? You guys know where to, you guys know where to reach us. <laughs> that's all the time we have for today. You know, we didn't even get to the fact that there's a new Russia story that came out today, but I don't know. Let's just say it's bad for Donald Trump. Bad for Donald Trump. You've already, read, you've already made up your mind. You're listening to this. It's a couple hours later. The emails are something like this. You should collude with Putin to become president. This way we'll all make lots of money. I'm your shady Russian businessman friend. Collude with Putin. Win election. Win a- uh, Look, it was Joe America. You'll get money. You'll win the election. Collude. Go all the way with it. No one will ever know. ABC. End of email. Always be colluding. All right. On that note. Is that it? We'll see you later this week, guys. It's time to expose the crooked media deception. <laughs> yes. Great. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today.